So, you've worked out the main claims for your paper, and you've also supplied reasons and evidence for those claims. But, will people believe what you're saying? Will they understand it? That's where acknowledgments and warrants come in, which we'll be talking about today on Surviving Seminary. Welcome to Surviving Seminary, where we seek to offer helpful advice for your seminary journey. I'm your host, Jason Stark, and with me as always is my co-host, Kevin Sutherland. Hey, Kevin. Hello, hello. We are continuing our whole suite through the writing process, the writing of a research paper, and we've come a long way, haven't we? Yes, we have. But of course, we have been using as our main go-to the book The Craft of Research, which we would continue to recommend to anybody who is in uh, the process of writing a research paper or learning how to do that better. Yes. And we are getting into a section about two different things that we want to talk about. I think they're two different chapters, but one of those is acknowledgments and another is warrants. Let's begin with acknowledgments. One thing you're saying, though, as far as two different things, but they are both responses that you could imagine a reader that maybe isn't convinced by what you're saying, uh, you know? And so the first thing that we've got are acknowledgments. This is where you anticipate your reader's objections and you respond to them. So the best acknowledgments are those kinds of answers that you give to questions that are real. Um, and part of the process of research is that you're going to have to read up and be aware of what are the kinds of things that I can expect. If I say that X is true, what can I expect somebody that doesn't believe that to say in response? And then you create, you craft an argument maybe against that, or even At the minimum, you at least say, yes, I know that this is a problem and I believe that it will get solved out or it brings more benefit than problem with that. But those are the kinds of things that you need to do to show that you are aware that there is another perspective out there and that you are trying to win over those people by either omitting their argument or at least acknowledging and saying, yes, that is a problem. I will get back with you when I can or whenever more data shows up. So just any kind of acknowledgement is going to prevent your readers from automatically tuning you out and saying, this person does not know what the state of the field is in this case. Right. And that's a balance too. Like you can't just load your paper with every single acknowledgement that there possibly is Mm -hmm. because then you would be writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. Again, there's a whole scholarly conversation about the topic that you're writing about. And sure, people are going to have different viewpoints on different aspects of that topic uh, or that question. And so there has to be like a sweet spot, basically, where you pick the most prominent acknowledgments that you're going to have to make Mm -hmm. and make sure to get them in there in the paper at the right place so that uh, so that your paper isn't overloaded with it, but it does show your it it shows that you've done your homework essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to get in the weeds, you could easily get in the weeds. Like, 
um, you know, in the field that I'm doing dissertation research in, um, I could talk big uh, objections that most scholars would have, and then I could get down into stuff like Jesus mythicism that there's a small, very mi- small minority of largely online skeptics that argue that Jesus never existed, but there aren't very many major scholars. There's probably only at most a couple major scholars that even hold to that view. So if I waste a lot of ink bringing this up, not only is that going to make my paper more fluffy, as uh, we talked about the last episode that you don't want to do, but it might actually give credence to that objection. And people will think, wait, you know what I mean? There are lots of people that believe that Jesus doesn't even exist. Yeah, I'm writing about how, I should say I'm starting to research right now, Mm -hmm. how studies of the scriptures that look at the whole thing, or like a whole book of the Bible Mm -hmm. as as its final form, which is synchronic studies, how that kind of conflicts and butts heads sometimes with how we look at the scriptures as like a book of the Bible developing through time, and that's called diachronic studies. And so if I'm going along in the paper that I'm trying to finish up right now for that, and then I say, you know, and I understand that some people say that God isn't real, right? but what I would <laughs> respond to by in that is I would say, you know, so yes. of course, that's an acknowledgement that is going to hit some chord with somebody, right? but not it's not going to hit a chord that really matters in what you're talking about. Yes. So you have to balance out what you pick and what you don't pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that Goldilocks zone again of you got to get it just right. And that's hard to feel out because every paper is going to be different. Every topic is going to be different. But the more you're aware of the scholarly discussion about that topic, the more you're going to be able to say, this is an important objection and this is not an important objection. Or even if it's not necessarily a major objection in the field, but if it's particularly relevant to your argument, then yes, you might want to spend some time and respond to it, especially if it's maybe a new objection that just got put out there. But, you know, it's again, feeling out and seeing what's, what's current with the discussion and where you need to anticipate the most pushback from. Yeah, I I would say there has to be some sort of level of intuition going on here as Mm -hmm. you're writing through your claims and your reasons and your evidence. There's going to be a certain extent to which you are reviewing everything that you've kind of plotted out, and you'll say to yourself, hmm, I'm kind of lacking for my own opinion, enough evidence on this to convince everybody, and I know that someone is going to respond by saying X. Yeah. And that can help you determine and say, this is probably where an acknowledgement needs to go in, especially if it's a very divisive aspect of the topic that you're in, that can help you out. Yeah, and then the other aspect of that, especially if you've got you're in a field that allows footnotes for these kinds of things. You then have to decide, is this a big enough objection and important enough to the argument of my paper that it stays in the actual body of the paper, or does it get moved to a footnote where I acknowledge it because I know somebody out there is going to say, well, what about this when I talk about this particular aspect? But I know that um, the majority of people aren't going to be worried about it. If I still feel like I need to acknowledgement, I can at least throw it down into a footnote and not take up as much space and not blo- like bloat my argument with all this extraneous material. 
All right, so now we're going to shift a little bit into something else that you're going to have to consider as you're laying out your argument, because we have to acknowledge where our argument might have some weakness to it. We also have to acknowledge places where our readers might not be as familiar with every aspect of what you're talking about as you are. You've spent a lot of time researching for this paper, and because of that, you've got a lot of stuff flowing in your mind. It's kind of all your cylinders are firing, and it's kind of happening naturally, and you might come across something in your writing process that your reader will come along and read and say, wait, what? Mm -hmm. What is that about? And that would be where we get into the topic of a warrant. A warrant is an attempt to address how your reason that you're giving for your claim, how it's relevant to that claim. Sometimes the connection is quite obvious and your reader won't have any problem with that. Other times, the connection is not going to be quite so obvious and you're going to have to supply something to help them out. Warrants are acknowledged by, uh, sorry, I'm not trying to pun right there, but they are uh, admitted by uh, the authors of The Craft of Research to be one of the most nebulous and hard to wrap your mind around things. So we're going to do our best to talk about these. But these are specifically answering the question of how is your reasons and how are your evidence relevant to your claim? Um, a lot of the time, if especially if you're talking in a part of a conversation that's been f thoroughly developed, then you can just say certain things and people are going to know, yes, that is relevant to the claim. And then they just have to judge whether or not it's factual. But other times you may be presenting new information or you may be talking about this to someone that's outside of your field and outside of this discussion that are like, so what? I don't understand how you can go from this evidence supports that claim because they don't understand the reasoning that uh, attaches this evidence to that claim. So sometimes, again, we're going back to the Goldilocks zone uh, metaphor, but sometimes you're going to, if you were to go out and say, this is this proves this because of these reasons and right here, then you're going to offend the expert readers, if you're if you're trying to address expert readers in this field, they're going to be like, uh, "Why are you telling us all this? We already know this, you know." But other times, if you don't share that warrant to the non-expert, or you're trying to do something new, then they're going to just be, you know, the crickets are going to be going whenever you finish talking because they're like, "I don't understand how." this relates to what you're saying at all. And I think one of the things that makes this as difficult as it gets is that you have to examine a lot of your assumption-based thought, mm -hmm. saying, again, you understand why these things relate together. And sometimes it can be hard to kind of step out of the box, like to step away from yourself and your thought process enough to to externalize those connections in a way that's meaningful for people. So it can be very challenging to, to identify the warrants, I think, and then also, as you're saying, to judge which warrants need to be included and which don't. So an example that the craft of research gives for why you might need a warrant or whatnot, they give a claim and a reason here. Uh, the reason you'll know starts because it starts with the word because – 
um, in this, but the claim is a whale is more closely related to a hippopotamus than to a cow. And so here's the reason, because it shares more DNA with a hippopotamus. And they go on to talk about how if you're talking to a biologist, a group of biologists here, you're not going to spend a lot of energy explaining why DNA shows that uh, one animal is more closely to another. But let's say that this biologist is giving this a uh, talk or whatnot, and someone raises their hand and says, well, how do you know that? And they can say something like, uh, when a species shares more DNA with one species than it does with another, then we infer that it is more closely related to the first. So you give a circumstance and a consequence of that. So that then ties the whole argument together. You didn't have to spell that all out to the biologist, but you might have to spell that out to, say, your fifth grade uh, science class that doesn't necessarily know all the intricacies of DNA yet or whatnot. All right. So to get into some potential examples from my field and Kevin's field from Old Testament and New Testament studies, respectively. Um, all right. So, Kevin. All right. Now, it is commonly understood that the Old Testament—now, stay with me here, Kevin— okay. was written before— the New Testament. Whoa, mind blown. And so, depending on who you're talking to, which is like virtually, you know, everybody that is in seminary, you don't have to provide that particular warrant, right? Right. But there are other warrants that are a little bit more necessary to bring out. Again, maybe this one is not something that a whole lot of people will have to be told about, but if we go, if we're talking about the general acceptance of there being different sources that go into books of the Bible, mm -hmm. that the books of the Bible come together over the course of time because different scribal communities pick up a book of the Bible and it becomes augmented by them in a way that material becomes added over time. Obviously, that's a big thing when it comes to Pentateuchal studies, but it's also a big thing all over Old Testament studies. So if you're making a particular claim about how um, how a book of the Bible came together and, and you have a certain reason for that, again, you probably wouldn't have to bring that up to at, at a seminar or something. Like if you're at Society of Biblical Literature, you're not going to be talking about that. But mm -hmm. if you're making that presentation in your paper— to a community that's not as familiar, or dare we say it, perhaps hostile to such thoughts, mm -hmm. then you would have to lay that out in some way and kind of lay the groundwork for what you're talking about, because you have to orient those readers to that. I particularly like when you talked about the Old Testament being older and before the New Testament, just because that is an example of a warrant even there. So for some people that are not aware that, say, Mark is a book of the New Testament, and then you say, well, Mark uses the prophecy from Isaiah, then some people that are not aware that Isaiah is part of the Old Testament may not realize that it's okay for you to say Mark used Isaiah. They may say, well, how do you know Isaiah didn't use Mark? Well, because 
you know, we have this general understanding that Isaiah was written before Mark because Isaiah is part of the Old Testament and Mark is part of the New Testament, and therefore Isaiah should be before Mark. My silly example is really not as silly as I thought. No, because it's it's all stuff that we all understand, but we we can't always assume that everybody else has that same understanding that we do. And so that's a silly major example, but there are people that have at this point in, you know, the United States of America, there are a lot of people that can't tell you where Mark is in the Bible or, you know, what what is the fifth book of the Bible or whatnot, like and those kinds of things. So those are beginning to be that may be a warrant that someday you might have to do if you're talking to a bunch of people that have never read the Bible before. So yeah, an example of the New Testament would be what we call Mark and priority. And so um, this is not a universally agreed upon theory, but it's it's basically an understanding that Mark was actually the first gospel written and that Matthew and Luke uh, used Mark uh, as the base of their material. And then they added things that they maybe had other access to other sources for or wanted to make Mark a little bit smoother uh, in some places where, you know, his grammatical uh, style is maybe a little bit rough around the edges. They're making it a little bit more elegant or whatnot. Um, and again, it's it's not universally agreed on, but I can simply write a paper and say that uh, Luke uh, ed- edits and molds this story from Mark, and then I can look at how Mark looks and how Luke looks and say, and here's what Luke's is trying to do with that. If I, if you don't, if I'm talking to non-specialists, I need to first probably explain what mark and priority is. I may even need to build up an argument on why mark and priority is the case. If they, if I can't assume that they will believe me when I say that we think that Mark was written first, so I might have to bring up a whole. That might become a subclaim in my argument that I then have to introduce reasons and evidence for and acknowledgments of other viewpoints on all of that as well. So that's how this could be. With a non-expert, I may have to spell that out. But with experts, uh, maybe the most I have to do is say that I subscribe to Mark and Priority, and they're going to go, okay, now I understand why you think Luke wrote, or Luke expanded or edited this way that Mark wrote this, because I know that you believe Mark was written first. Yeah, ultimately, it seems like when we're talking about both acknowledgments and warrants, what we're trying to really do here is we are trying to get on the same page with our readers. Again, no pun intended, but we're trying to get on the same page with them and make sure that that everyone is properly oriented to what we're talking about. Because depending on where what the context of this paper is, that orientation is going to take one particular shape or another. Yeah, and and we don't mean to say that non-experts are the only ones that need warrants. Your expert audience may need a warrant too, especially if you're kind of coming out from outside of the box that everybody's carved out for themselves. Then you may need to spend some time saying, this is why this is a valid evidence to prove my point over here, because even though you're not aware of it, this relates to this because of this and whatnot. Uh, so making those clear when you need to, doesn't just mean these people should know what I'm talking about because they may know enough about the discussion, but they may have never heard your brand of reasoning or your evidence before. So, 
So as you are getting into your, as you're getting further along, I should say, in the process of writing a research paper, you need to ask certain questions of what you've got so far for your claims, the reasons that you supply for your claims, and the evidence that you have for your reasons. You have to kind of run it through the ringers, as it were, and put it through the machine and ask, what is there that is potentially weak in the argument, and how would it be best to address that? And you also have to ask, what is there in this that needs to be explained, which is often a contextual question that you have to determine. Yeah. Um, one thing about this is um, when you the art of rhetoric has been around for uh, thousands of years, and Greek rhetoricians brought out all these things, and they divided your argument, any persuasive speech, into three categories. You had ethos, your logos, and your pathos, and I wouldn't pronounce them that way if this was an actual Greek class, but... Uh, you know, this where you're acknowledging your opponents, where you are giving your warrant, those are all the things you're doing to build your ethos. You're you're building your reputation as a scholar, as someone that can be trusted in your argument. So the better you handle your acknowledgments and your warrants, the more likely you are to build in a persuasive aspect of your writing because they'll be able to say, this person's really thought about this. And they've really tried to make sure that I understand where they're coming from. And so I kind of want to believe them just on that alone. Yeah, it can be a tool of persuasion. But I do think also that when you get down to it, beyond how you want to come off to your readers, there is a certain genuine ethical need Mm -hmm. to make sure that you're honest. Yeah, You have to be honest with yourself. And that can mean sometimes when you can see that your argument has a potential hole in it. You have to be honest about it and bring it out there. Because yeah. you don't want to just make it sound like you've got this Loctite argument and you're not including very important information. Um, because again, it, it will not look good. The optics will be bad. And if you get down to it, I just think it's not good. Right. I mean, we don't want to have cognitive dissonance going on where we say one thing, but we really believe another because we've realized there's a big hole in my argument but I've gotten too far in this point. Cover so. it. Cover yeah. it quick. <laughs> Just pretend like it doesn't exist. So I think that is about the long and the short of it when it comes to our discussion of warrants and acknowledgments, and we're going to close this episode up. So if you want to learn more about the research writing process, if you haven't listened to our episodes on that yet, we invite you to head to our website, which is survivingseminary2019.podbean.com. You can also head to our Facebook page, Surviving Seminary Podcast, and you can send us a message there if you'd like to get into contact with us. Tell us how great we're doing. Tell us how bad we're doing. We want to hear it all, and we hope that you would come back and listen again. And until next time, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.